I like Jim's comments this morning, um, comparing graduating high school to passing from death into life. I could tell what kind of relationship Jim had with his high school, and I had the same one. I, I thought that was epic. Uh, um, we're in uh, uh, this morning. We're going to be focusing a lot on Second Corinthians five, and specifically verse twenty-one. Uh, if you want to open up there. Um, this, this particular message is very special to me because, um, I, you know, a lot of theologians, scholars would, would, many say that this, this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, encompasses the gospel, um, and is one of the greatest verses, um, if there is a greatest verse, right, in, in the New Testament. It's a verse that has, has, uh, shaken my life, um, I pray that it would be the heart of our gospel. And, and um, all that said, there's actually a lot of disagreement about what on earth 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying. And so I'm going to really get into this text. And I pray that we come out of it with just riches from God. And I pray that it really, really means something to you. Uh, let's go before him in prayer and lift this up before him. Uh, my God, I just want to come before you and recognize you as King and Lord and Sovereign um, I praise you, Father, for giving us a ministry of reconciliation, uh, giving us lives with meaning and purpose, for causing us to be the very aroma of Christ, letters written from you, jars of clay shining a light into this world, tabernacles through which you dwell by your Spirit. And um, I just praise you, Father, because I know that you are here with us. Your presence is always with us. And... Um, Breathe into us new life, new mission, new purpose through your word. It's in Christ we come before you. Amen. Um, This is where we left off last week. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I want to tell you that a, a lot of a lot of scholars will treat the opening five chapters of Second Corinthians as though they just apply to Paul and his entourage and his, the people that are working with him, that they are defending their ministry. And that's actually very true. That is the purpose of what Paul is writing. He's, he's up against the super apostles that we're going to talk about later in the book, but he's defending his ministry. However, he gives several indications throughout this. In fact, in verse 15 of this chapter, he, he, he opens this up to everybody. He says, listen, you have been brought from life into death, and he has given you new meaning, and he's given you new purpose. This is something that applies to all mankind and not simply just to his, his entourage. So we've talked about this. Said In chapter 2, we said we are the aroma of Christ. In chapter 3, it says we are letters from God. He says you yourselves are our letter. A letter written not on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of human hearts. In chapter 4, he talked about us being a light into the world in jars of clay. This is what we are. And then in chapter 5, we talked about tents. We talked about tabernacles. But this is where he goes from this. He says, so if you are in Christ, you, all of everybody, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. I'm not going to spend too much time on these verses because they really kind of parallel all of the chapters up until now. But I do want to say this about it. Um, years ago, I, had, I was sitting in my office doing something on my computer, and I felt a presence behind me in my office. And I just said something silly like, man, I know you're there. Um, and I turned around. I thought it was somebody sneaking up on me. And I turned around and there's this girl, a young teen that's crying and just standing there. And I don't know her. And uh, she she just came to the building and I was the only one there. And she said, uh, if you call the police, I'm going to run. And I said, well, this should get good. What? And she said, I'm a runaway. Um, and I don't have, I'm not home right now. My parents don't know where I am. Nobody knows where I am, but I needed to talk to somebody. If you pick up the phone, I'm going to run. Um, and immediately I just got super nervous. What do I do in this situation? Is it wrong for me to not call the police right now? Is it wrong? What do I do? I don't know. Um, it's my life. I, I usually don't know what to do in a situation like that. And I, I, I did. I just sat down with her and said, can we talk? Let's, let's just talk. And she was shaking. And somehow I had this pressure on me that I have been put in an opportunity by God that I need to make reconciliation between this girl and her parents, this girl and whatever's going on in her life. I have this opportunity. And every word matters. And what we do, this is what counts. And I said, well, can we just go on a ride? Can I take you back to your school, back to where you're supposed to be, back to your house, and can we just pray together in front? Can we talk? And it was just this amazing opportunity where we, we, I, I was able to get on the phone with her parents, and she let me do that. And they said, just tell her we love her. We forgive her. Come home. Just tell her that. And I would talk to the girl and I would talk to the parents and I was in this situation where it's like, man, they love you. They want to open up the doors to you. You don't have anywhere to stay. You're cold. You're hungry. Come back home. It was committed to me at the time to a message of reconciliation. And finally, the girl said, okay. And her dad just embraced her and it was a beautiful scene. And so many situations like that I'm caught in. I was caught in one yesterday and the day before with a man uh, that Bob has also been working with, and, and a man that said, listen, uh, God hates me. And I said, why do you think God hates you? And I said, he gave you life. He's given you beauty. He's given all these gifts in your life. Why would you say he hates you? Because every time I try to get things right, I mess up. And see, so you think God hates you because you feel like you mess up. I don't understand what you're saying. I said, all God has done is paid a price. All God has done is open up a door to you. All God wants is to want you back and to forgive you and welcome you back home. Yeah, but I'm a mess up. Every time I try to do something, I mess up and I can't. I'm trash. And I said, man, that's exactly what the message of grace is, man. Every single one of us that stands before God, it's not as though I can stand before him and say, look at me, God. Didn't I do well? Look at me. Look at my success. Do I have a resume that I can give God that's going to impress him? Every single one of us stands before God filthy, dirty. Um, Isaiah the prophet said all of our righteous deeds are as what? Filthy rags. Before you, this is, this is where I stand before this God. And that's what I shared with him. A message of reconciliation. 
God made him who had no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's where we're going. This is what the the text goes on to say. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He says in these, these verses, this is the meaning and this is the purpose of our lives. This is why I'm still here. After I gave my life to God, I mean, I gave my life to God. I'm a Christian. God, don't let me lose my love for you. Don't take this away from me. But why don't you just take my life? I made the decision to give it to you. Why am I still here? Because you're an ambassador. Because you're a jar of clay. Because I've given you and I have entrusted you with the message of reconciliation. The greatest way, not that the goal of our life is to leave a legacy, it's not, I don't think. But the greatest way you can leave a legacy in this world, and the one thing that we can accomplish in this world that really means something, is to lead someone to Christ. That is the most eternal and amazing thing that anyone can ever be a part of. And once you've, you, once you've been a part of that in your life, and so you could say, and it's not boasting, and I hope it never comes across as boasting, because we're pathetic, I know that. But if you could say, wow, somebody is a Christian today. Somebody has given their life to Christ today because of something that happened through me. I'm ready to die. I mean, at that point, I'm ready to die. God actually accomplished something through my life that was eternal. That is powerful. And I want to let you know this, and this is important because i got to get on to where I want to go, but you may not see the fruit of that in your lifetime. There are going to be people led to Christ because of you that you will never know, and I praise God that that's the case. That there's something that can happen through me and in me that brings somebody to Christ, whether it's a seed, an action, whatever it is. I really believe that's the purpose and that's the meaning of what the church is called to be in this world. Now, I think we can treat it, and we have treated it, too much like a business where we're trying to grow in numbers and, hey, it doesn't work that way. The gospel isn't supposed to be treated that way. That's not what it is. God, we're just farmers, we're planting seed. Okay? We are not responsible for the soil. It's not, it shouldn't even be called the parable of the seeds. It should be called the parable of the soil. It's, we're just throwing out seed. We're not responsible for the crop. Too much of the books written in the West today that have to do with missiology and so forth, they really put the pressure on the farmer where the gospel says, listen, you shine a light for Christ. The soil is what the soil is. Okay? That is what the Bible seems to do. You go and you go plant seed and you represent that. But this is how Paul saw himself and this is how he saw his purpose. And then he sums it up with this verse. God made him. This is the message of reconciliation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God What I'm going to do with you this morning is I'm going to really break this verse down. We're going to get deep into this text. I'm going to talk to you about some of the disagreement that takes place here and talk about about why I believe this is such a powerful verse for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin. Um, Now, that word sin is just the Greek word hamartia. It's not 
the typical word that's used for sin offering or so forth. It really just means sin. And so people have done a lot of things with this. Some of your versions um, will say, very few versions will say this, but will say sin offering. Most of your versions say sin, that he became sin. But a lot of theologies developed out of this verse. And there's this idea out there um, that somehow Christ became evil, wicked, sin on the cross, They'll quote, uh, I'll get into this in a minute, the verses that say God is too pure to look upon evil and therefore God turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God said, because you've become sinful, I can't look at you. Um, And it, it gets weird. Most of you have been exposed if you don't believe that that's what happened on the cross. I'm going to say that that is not what happened on the cross. We're going to get into that in a minute. The other view is that he became simply a sin offering. Um, that, that this is what's taking place. He's a sin offering uh, on the cross. And I think that that misses the punch of what he's trying to do in this birth. I think both of those views kind of miss the impact that he wants to bring home here. But before I get into that, I want to read to you three parallel passages. And I think that these are so crucial when you get into really studying the Bible. I think we get lost too much in... Simply Greek and theology and philosophy, and we really forget to consider especially parallel passages that can help bring light and shed light on what's talk, what he's talking about here. So you might write these down. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Galatians 3, 13 through 14, and Romans 8, 3 through 4. The second, first one says this, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Now, he's already said that in this letter, that he has become something so that you could become what he was. Okay? Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Romans 8, 3 through 4. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Now all three of those passages parallel what he's talking about here But I want to get into this first view, uh, the idea that Christ either became sinful or literally embodied sin. Um, On the cross, he said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, do you know what he's quoting right there? Psalm 22. Now, this is super important. This is what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Now I want you to watch how many times Psalm 22 is referenced or quoted in the crucifixion. The chief priests and teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him. Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. How about this? The teachers of the law were fulfilling the prophecy, quoting scripture. It seems like they're unaware that they're doing it. 
Then they led him away to crucify him. He says in Psalm 22, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. He says in verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Christ cried out, I'm thirsty. Um, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 16. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You understand that the previous section of Scripture, and this is a different study, was the, the uh, oh man, I, I forgot the name of it, the Hallel, um, that's sung during Passover. Uh, the Psalms that are sung during Passover are quoted and referenced throughout the entire Passover sequence. And it keeps being referenced both by Christ and everyone else on the scene. He were doing it again in these verses that have to do with the crucifixion. We keep referencing Psalm 22. It actually closes with this phrase, he has done it. Do you know how that Hebrew should actually be translated? It is finished. So Christ's final words on the cross were closing the psalm. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he closes the psalm with the exact same, what would be in the Septuagint, the, the equivalent. It is finished. This is this has been completed. And so you're watching Psalm 22 play out. But guess what Psalm 22 says in the middle? It says this. He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. It says that in the middle of the psalm. Much like a lot of David's psalms, he cries out this prayer to God, and then God answers him saying, listen, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am right here. I am present. What I'm going to suggest to you is Christ is simply crying out, look at everything that's happening. Look at what you're saying. Look at everything that's happening right now. Let me give you a clue. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he references Psalm 22 and brings them, I believe, to their knees. Those standing there that would have known the psalm. This is being fulfilled right here in our presence. This is what's taking place. Um, often these verses are quoted. It says in Habakkuk 1.13, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And there's this idea that God, the Father is this all-powerful, all-pure God, and he can't look on evil. But somehow Jesus is a lesser God that somehow can look upon evil and can be in the midst of evil and can do these things. And so he has powers that God the Father doesn't have. It gets weird. But you know what Habakkuk goes on to say is, and this is the part of the verse that's not quoted, he says, why then do you tolerate? Why then do you look upon? Wait a second. The same verse that we just used to say God can't do this, all of a sudden God is doing this. I was speaking to somebody the other day that doesn't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. Um, that they, they, uh, they have a Muslim, uh, a Muslim faith now. Uh, they consider themselves to be Muslim. And they said it's impossible. In my view, it's impossible for an all-powerful God to, to manifest himself in the flesh. That's not possible. And I said, I just want to quote back to you what you just said. It's impossible for an all-powerful God. Ellipsis. What, what do you mean it's impossible for an all-powerful God? They said, I see your point. Okay. Uh, God wrestled with Jacob, didn't he? God appeared in the bush, didn't he? He appeared. I went through every time it happened in the Old Testament. I said, same thing happened in the New. This is what you're witnessing in Christ. Um, 
Christ was, I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches this, God in the flesh. When he was crucified on the cross, the idea that he became something dark or something sinful in the eyes of the Father not only misses the nature of God, and I could get into that for a while, it misses the nature of sin and the imputation of sin and what that means and what that looks like. I'm going to talk about that a little bit um, before we go on in this verse. And I know a lot of this, this there's, there's so much here, um, but this is going to be important, so wade through this with me just a little bit. I want you to think about the cross, what it means to you, and what exactly happened on the cross. In the Levitical sacrificial system, um, they would lift up offerings to God. There was the burnt offering, and it was saying, God, I give you all that I am. There's the grain offering. It says, I give you the work of my hands. There's the peace offering that says, I praise you for your fellowship with you. The sin offering that is, I, I, I come before you and, and I want forgiveness for my trespasses against you. And there was the trespass offering, which is, God, forgive me for my trespasses against my brother. But I'm coming before you. And you know what God did in each one of those offerings? There was something that the high priest priest, the sons of Aaron were called to do. You were to bring a goat, you were to bring an animal, and they were to lay their hands on the head of that animal. And it says this, I just want to read some verses that deal with that. It says, it says this in Leviticus 16, 21, I'll use this one. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Now it actually says that, Put the sins on the goat's head. Now, I don't, I wouldn't suggest to you that that goat suddenly became evil in the eyes of the Lord. That God looked at this goat and said, whoa, we have evil on a goat and now we must kill it. That's not what was taking place. The goat bore the sin representatively. I hope I said that word right. I tried. He bore that sin representatively. That is what is taking place in that animal. God did not suddenly hate this goat. Um, that's not what's taking place. In Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 7, it says this. Ooh, there's so much in this verse. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Look at what Isaiah 53 just said. All of us are like sheep. He was the lamb, and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, showing that this coming Christ is exactly what we're talking about back in, here in Leviticus. He is going to bear the sin of the people in, some kind, in a representative manner. Um, I want to go through some other verses in Isaiah 53, and then we're, we're going to move on just a little bit. It says this in verse 4, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. Verse 6, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, The Lord makes His life a guilt offering. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. This is the grand theme of Isaiah 53, that the sin of the people would be laid on him in a representative manner on the cross. Um, this, is, this is sort of uh, a really strange verse in the Bible. It says this in John three fourteen, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in this desert... 
so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, now this idea, there's a kind of a drawing of what this event that happened. I think this is Second Kings 18. Um, this, this bronze serpent later in Israelite history became known as Nehushtan, um, the, the, the snake god. Okay, And they began to worship this image. This is a part of Israel's history until Hezekiah shattered the image and said that's not going to happen anymore. But I want you to think about the account of what happened. Snakes are biting the people. They're being inflicted with poison and pain. So Moses lifts up a serpent on a staff. He doesn't lift up a lamb. He doesn't lift up a dove. He doesn't lift up something that you would, would, would correlate with, with righteousness or purity. He lifts up a bronze serpent. And this is going to be the type, this is going to be the foreshadowing of the cross of Christ, a snake representing Christ. Now you look at me and say, wow, doesn't this go back to your first point? I thought he didn't become sinful. I thought he didn't become sin. I don't think that that's what's happening at all. But the idea is this. He represented that sin. In a representative fashion, he bore it on a cross. And that is what brings us to the more important part, I believe, of the chapter is this. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what this means is going to be important to us, to become the righteousness of God. It says in Colossians 1.22, He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Now, I'm going to ask you some tough questions this morning, and this is going to have to do with stuff that's the heart of all of our lives. Would you consider yourself holy this morning, would you stand and say, I am holy before God? That, that is something that I would see heads go both directions. I don't know. I, anyone who knows me, anyone who knows any of us knows that I have sin in my life. But I have a problem because I have to somehow take what I know of Jeff and take what I know of Scripture and make sense out of these two things. I would stand before you and say that I am a sinful person, like Isaiah said, a man of, of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I don't even know how to constantly think thoughts that glorify you or to keep my mind or my tongue clean. But this is what Scripture said. He presents you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Hebrews 10.10 says this, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Galatians 3.26 says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Hebrews 10.14, Because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Constantly. Scripture over and over and over again looks at you and says, You are holy. In fact, that's the, what the word saints mean. Whenever you see a letter to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints, do you know that that word is the Greek word, hagios? It simply means my holy ones. Every time he would write to his children, he would say, my holy ones. And so we stand before God and say, I'm wicked, I'm sinful, I'm dirty. And he says, no, 
because of this, the crucifixion of my son, what I've done is God made him who knew no sin to take on your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? It says he took off his clothes. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he was wearing. And he stood, knelt before his disciples, robed in their dirt. And he says this, do you understand what I've done for you? It also says this in that chapter. This is John 13. It says, it says it was at this time that he chose to show them the full extent of his love. We're talking about more than washing feet in John 13. You find that out when he gets to Peter and he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We're talking about more than washing feet. He's taken on something on our behalf in a representative manner or whatever else so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now this is, and I'm going to put this little interjection here because I'm going to talk about Romans a little bit. This fall, we're going to be in a series on Romans chapter 8. We're just going to spend time in Romans 8. I'm giving this, this congregation a challenge. I want you to believe in yourself. As many as possible, I want you to do this. We are going to memorize Romans 8. Okay, man, I actually heard an audible sigh just then. I'm working on an audio right now that I'm going to share with you guys that you can listen to it when you're working out, do whatever different people are reading from it. But we're going to spend time in Romans 8, okay? But this chapter, Romans 8, is so crucial. And it's important that we get it and live in it. So that's something we're going to be doing. You can start working on it now. As a church, I've chosen personally to be in the ESV. uh, But you can choose your own version. This is what Romans says about a righteousness from God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Chapter 3, he says this, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. In verse 22, a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. Nine times in chapter 4 of Romans, he speaks of a righteousness that is a gift from God or credited to God. And in chapter 10, he says this, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which is through faith, which is of Christ. This, there you have a a righteousness that is my own that would be of the law and a righteousness that is in faith that is of Christ. These are the two things that he's juxtaposing in that chapter. And it's this idea that I, when I stand before God, I do not stand before him with my works of righteousness and my, my horrible deeds in my life and say, God, here I am, you're the judge. That's not the way it works. You come to Christ one of two ways. I'm either in him or out of him. And if I am in Christ, then I am a new creation. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. I want to go back to this verse. It says, many of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now think about what that means and why he uses that language to be clothed 
with Christ. Whatever happened to Christ on the cross, and I I believe we're going to use words like imputation and all this other stuff, in a representative manner anyway, Christ bore sin. I don't believe God left him. I don't believe God turned his back on him. I don't think that there are three gods that have this weird relationship and drama with each other. That's not the way it works. I do believe in a representative manner he bore my sin so that I can stand before God today in prayer. And it says this in in Hebrews, I can access his throne with confidence. Because of the blood of Christ, I am clean before him. What I want to let you know, and I'll close with that. That's, that's, that went everywhere and it got kind of deep in that. I want you to know this. If you're that person that comes to church, and if this is your first time to Meadowlark, man, welcome. I hope we're not always this heavy, but uh, welcome. But if you're that person that comes and says, man, I, I just can't pray because I'm sick and I'm sinful and I've got this darkness in my life. Your, your Lord is standing before you and he says, I have completely paid the price. I have opened the doors wide open for you. I am staying up waiting for you. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation to go into the world and say, listen, I am not a strong Christian today because of a righteous lifestyle that I could put on display before you or anybody else, and especially not before my God. I have been reconciled to God purely through his effort and through his work. Um, It is still my choice. Because God paid for the sins of all mankind. God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that he'd be the first, you know, that whoever believes in him, whoever. So this idea that it's only for a certain group and elect, no. God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God's will is for everyone. So the only answer here is this. What do I choose? Do I choose to come back home or do I choose not to come back home? That's it. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, you are clean, you are holy, and you can have confidence in the day of your own death, you can have confidence that by his grace, you are welcomed into his kingdom. I pray that not one of us would go with fear into his arms. He loves you as a father loves his child. My God, I want to come before you and... Pray that you would not be in anyone's eyes, my eyes, anyone, as a judge that is distant from uh, the accused. But you are a judge, but you are also a father, and you're full of love. And I pray, God, that we would have the humility in our hearts to receive what you've done for us, to be clothed with the righteousness that is not our own, but is by the faith which is of Christ. I love you so much, Father, for uh, the message of reconciliation. And I pray, God, that we would understand this not as only something deeply personal to each one of us that affects our relationship with you, but, God, deeply personal to our vocation and what we are doing in this life, our meaning and our purpose. I pray, God, that you would call us to be ambassadors with humility and passion that we would share that message with this world. You made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become your righteousness. I love you, Father, for that. It's in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's stand and worship our God together.